Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and our new doctoral program. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Our speaker today is Daniel Golden, who is a senior editor at ProPublica, a nonprofit website for investigative reporting. His latest book, Spy Schools, How the CIA, FBI, and Foreign Intelligence Secretly Exploit America's Universities, was published by Henry Holt in October 2017. John Lacar, the renowned spy novelist, has described it as timely and shocking, and CBS has optioned it for a television series. Before joining ProPublica in October 2016, Golden was managing editor for Education and Enterprise at Bloomberg News. There, he edited a series about tax inversions, companies moving headquarters overseas to avoid taxes, that earned Bloomberg's first ever Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Golden also won a Pulitzer Prize as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in 2004 for a series of articles on preferences for children and donors in college admissions. He expanded that series into a critically acclaimed national bestseller, The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way into Elite Colleges and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates, which the Washington Post selected as one of the best nonfiction books of 2006. <laughs> Mr. Golden's experience and awards uh, continues on for many, many lines, um, but for now, I'm going to let him get to his lecture. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thanks, Allison. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Good, good. Uh, well, I'd uh, like to thank the, the Institute for inviting me and, and everybody uh, here for, for coming. Uh, you know, I'm sure if, if you're a student here or a professor here, you probably know a lot more about statecraft uh, than, uh, than I would ever hope to, but uh, I'll, I'll try and give you what I do know. And, uh, you know, my book is about uh, both domestic and foreign uh, clandestine intelligence gathering at uh, American universities. But for this talk, I'm going to focus on uh, foreign uh, targeting of American universities uh, with a particular emphasis on uh, China. Uh, Forty years ago this July, the phone rang at 3 a.m. in the White House bedroom of President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind. Carter, who had given instructions not to wake him except for a crisis, thought, oh my, there's a tragedy somewhere in the United States. I'm not going to try and do Carter's accent, so he'll, be just sound, he'll sound like me for this talk. Uh, on the phone was Carter's national science advisor, geologist Frank Press. Frank, what's happened? Another Mount Etna or something like that exploded? Carter asked. No, I'm in China with Deng Xiaoping, Press said. What's happened with Deng Xiaoping? What's wrong? Deng Xiaoping insisted I call you now to see if you would permit 5,000 Chinese students to come to American universities. Furious over losing sleep, the president shouted, tell him to send 100,000, and slammed down the phone. Once he calmed down, Carter welcomed Deng's overture. 
China had closed its doors to the West since the 1949 Communist Revolution. Carter's administration, eager to normalize diplomatic relations through educational institutions and other cooperative programs, expected China to send only a handful of students to American colleges. But Deng, who was emerging as a leader after Mao Zedong's death two years before, was determined to modernize China. He recognized that U.S. universities far surpassed China's, especially in science and technology. Dispatching thousands of students across the Pacific would narrow the gap, especially if they returned home with the latest American innovations. The opening of China's student pipeline would prove to be a pivotal moment in the globalization of American higher education and in the rise of academic espionage. Within a few years, as the number of Chinese students in the U.S. soared, the FBI began noticing signs of an increase in campus espionage, such as a spike in the use of copying paper. Now, the thesis of my book, Spy Schools, is that the globalization of American universities has transformed them into a front line for spying by countries such as China, Russia, and Cuba, as well as by the CIA and FBI. The number of foreign students and faculty has been mushrooming for 40 years. In 2016, the number of international students at U.S. universities topped 1 million for the first time, almost seven times the total in 1975, and more than double the 2,000 figure, although the numbers are starting to level off now, as, as you may have read, as a result of the Trump administration's uh, anti-immigration stance. The number of foreign-born scientists and engineers working at U.S. colleges and universities rose 44% in the decade between 2003 and 2013, from 360,000 to 517,000. In key technical fields such as engineering and computer science, American universities award more than half of their doctorates to international students. Now, this educational globalization has many benefits. Uh, skilled and cheap labor for graduate research, uh, diverse perspectives in the classroom, cross-cultural understanding, and collaboration of the world's best minds in the advancement of learning and research. But there is this alarming side effect. Some small but uh, you know, significant percentage of international students and faculty and visiting scholars come to help their countries gain recruits for clandestine operations insights into U.S. government plans, and access to sensitive military and civilian research. The FBI and CIA reciprocate, cultivating international students and researchers whom they hope to send home as our agents. I was able to dig up a lot of new and startling information and case studies of the penetration of spies into American colleges and universities from renowned private institutions like Harvard, MIT, Duke and Johns Hopkins, to state schools like the University of South Florida, and even small liberal arts colleges like Marietta College in Ohio. For foreign intelligence services, a university offers a valuable and lightly guarded target. They can exploit the revolving door between academia and government. Today's professor of international relations is tomorrow's assistant secretary of state. They can recruit naive students and guide them into the federal agency of their choice. People are most pliable in their late teens and early 20s when they're young and inexperienced. Chris Simmons, a former counterintelligence officer at the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, which is the Pentagon's intelligence arm, uh, told me. 
It's easy for someone trained in the art of manipulation to steer them in a direction they're already inclined or help convince them it's what they intended all along. Universities undertake a growing amount of government-funded research, much of it sensitive. The U.S. government spent $27.4 billion on academic research and development in 2014, triple the tab in 1990. That includes $2.4 billion from the Pentagon and intelligence agencies, not counting the CIA, which doesn't report expenditures. Also, open campuses make it simple to gather intelligence. Spies with no academic affiliation can slip unnoticed into lecture halls, student centers, libraries, and cafeterias, and befriend the computer scientist or Pentagon advisor sitting beside them. Academia's old-fashioned gentlemanly culture also abets espionage. All it takes for professors in different countries to agree to collaborate on research is often just a phone call, an email, or perhaps a handshake at a conference, rather than a contract that explicitly spells out what data or equipment each side has access to. Many science students and faculty are unfamiliar with intellectual property safeguards. In one study, 21% of UCLA engineering graduate students couldn't define a patent, 32% couldn't define a copyright, 51% couldn't define a trademark, and 68%, more than two-thirds, couldn't define a trade secret. University administrations largely ignore this issue, in part for financial and reputational reasons. They're ramping up enrollment of full-paying international students and opening campuses abroad, which are often subsidized by the host countries, so uh, you know, they don't want to uh, kill the cash cow. Like their institutions, individual professors may put global prestige ahead of intellectual property. Uh, one case that comes to mind is that of John Reese Roth, an emeritus professor of electrical engineering at the University of Tennessee, who was convicted in 2008 and sentenced to four years in prison for using graduate students from China and Iran on US Air Force research that was supposed to be off limits to foreigners, and also for taking a laptop with restricted files to China. Now, Roth wasn't a Chinese spy. He was simply proud of his renown there. He found it hard to believe that a country where two universities had named him an honorary professor, where his lectures drew large audiences, and where both volumes of his book, Industrial Plasma Engineering, were available in translation, could have any duplicitous intent. When I visited him in 2012 in a federal prison in Ashland, Kentucky, he was devising a makeshift Mobius strip to catch red ants swarming across the floor of his cell and feasting on candy bar scraps. I still have some inventing ability, he told me. It struck me as a tragedy, a waste of a brilliant mind. China, which now accounts for almost one-third of international students in the U.S. and about 15% of foreign-born researchers and scientists, has taken the strategy of targeting academia to a new level. When it began sending students to the United States in 1978, Deng Xiaoping expected that 90% would come back home. Instead, after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, most Chinese recipients of U.S. doctorates stayed put. From that perspective, China had little choice but to spy on uni American universities. It needed to compensate for losing so much talent. 
The vast majority of Chinese students and researchers, of course, pose no threat and, like other newcomers, infuse American universities with energy and fresh perspectives. Still, a study conducted for my book found that at least 30 people born or raised in China and charged since 2000 in U.S. courts with economic espionage, theft of trade secrets, and similar offenses attended American colleges or graduate schools, including Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, and Cornell. The story of one Chinese graduate student at Duke University illustrates how vulnerable academic research is and how little universities do to protect it. I came across this saga when, through a public records request, I obtained the agenda of an October 2012 meeting of the National Security Higher Education Advisory Board, an obscure body that was established in 2005, mostly by former Penn State President uh, Graham Spanier, incidentally, who's known for his connection to the Sandusky case. Anyway, it was established in 2005 as a forum for university presidents and U.S. intelligence officials to discuss matters of mutual importance. One agenda item stated that Duke University professor David Smith, quote, will discuss how, without his knowledge, a Chinese national targeted his lab and published and exploited Dr. Smith's research to create a mirror institute in China. The episode cost Duke significantly in licensing, patents, and royalties, and kept Smith from being the first to publish groundbreaking research. I soon learned that Smith was a renowned researcher who had helped launch a fast-growing field called metamaterials, or artificial materials with properties not found in nature. His lab had invented the first, in, quote-unquote, invisibility cloak, a la Harry Potter, although it only concealed objects from microwaves, not the human eye. And his lab also had Pentagon funding to, vet, to develop ways of cloaking weapons and making them invisible. And I identified the Chinese national mentioned in the agenda item as Ruopong Liu, a former graduate student in Smith's lab. Through interviews with Smith and other lab members, I discovered that Liu had left a trail of suspicious behavior. He arranged for Chinese scientists to visit the Duke lab and photograph its equipment and pass them data and ideas developed by unwitting colleagues at Duke. He deceived Smith into committing to work part-time in China by enlisting him under false pretenses to participate in a program called Project 111, which China established in 2006 to, quote, spur scientific renewal of Chinese universities by recruiting renowned scientists as overseas academic masters. And he secretly started a Chinese website based on the research at Duke. None of these actions explicitly broke the rules, mostly because there was no contract and Duke's guidelines didn't anticipate this sort of situation, but they smacked of economic espionage. After numerous warnings from other members of the lab and questions from the Pentagon, Smith finally began to suspect Liu and took away his key to the lab, but Duke still awarded Liu a doctorate. Coincidentally or not, a week after Liu's dissertation defense, Duke trustees approved continuing negotiations with Chinese officials to build a campus in the city of Kunshan, which would supply the land and facilities for free. After receiving his degree, Liu returned to China, where he used Duke's research to start a competing institute and business with Chinese government support and became a billionaire. 
Liu, quote, was definitely filled with intent, unquote, and his actions, quote, could have tremendous economic impact in the future, Professor Smith told me. I think if people understood how something like this happens, and how those with potentially ill intent can take advantage of the natural chaos that occurs in U.S. academic environments, they might become more aware and avoid things like this in the future. In an interview for my book, uh, Liu defended himself by noting that the invisibility research was basic. It wasn't export controlled or classified. I worked in fundamental research and published papers, and they can be seen by anyone in the world, he said. Yet, there are advantages even to stealing open research, namely saving time and avoiding mistakes. With a mole in a U.S. university laboratory, researchers overseas can publish and patent an idea first, ahead of the true pioneers, and enjoy the consequent acclaim, funding, and surge in interest from top students and faculty. In fact, a foreign government may be eager to scoop up a fundamental breakthrough before its applications become so important that it's labeled secret and foreign students lose access to it. One former FBI official has a term for such promising science, pre-classified. <clears throat> Project 111, for which Liu was a recruiter, is one of a vast array of Chinese brain game programs that, intentionally or not, encourage theft of intellectual property from US universities. Unlike Project 111, most of the programs target China-born scientists overseas. Unhappy with the high percentage of Chinese students at Western universities who chose to stay abroad after earning their degrees, China's national, provincial, and municipal governments have embarked on aggressive efforts to lure back the most successful expatriates. Of the slew of initiatives, the best known are the 100 Talents Program and the 1,000 Talents Program. 100 Talents seeks up-and-coming scholars under age 40. 1,000 Talents, established in 2008 by the Communist Party's powerful organization department, woos prominent professors of Chinese ethnicity under age 55. These programs offer such generous salaries, laboratory facilities, research funds, housing, medical care, jobs for spouses, top schools for children, and other incentives that a borderline candidate may be tempted to improve his chances by bringing back somebody else's data or ideas. A former FBI agent summed up the implicit message to Chinese researchers in the US this way, don't come home empty handed. One such case involved a research assistant at Medical College of Wisconsin, Hua Jun Zhao. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation of the Chinese names. It's, I'm not, I don't speak Chinese. Um, in March 2013, he was arrested and charged with stealing three vials of a cancer-fighting compound from his professor, Marshall Anderson, who had patented it. Zhao, who claimed that he invented the compound and wanted to bring it to China for further study, had applied for funding from Chinese agencies that support overseas recruitment. One of his applications was an exact translation of an old grant proposal by Anderson. Zhao later pleaded guilty to a charge of illegally downloading research data. In the uh, Aeneid, the Roman poet Virgil famously wrote, Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. One might make the same observation about Chinese influence operations at universities, though they're typically bearing money instead of a wooden horse. The best known of these experiments in soft power 
are Confucius Institutes. An affiliate of Chinese, China's education ministry funds and staffs about 500 of these institutes worldwide and about 110 in the US. They typically offer courses in Chinese, history, language, and calligraphy. They have been controversial among academics for several years now for being an exercise in Chinese propaganda, spouting the party line while avoiding discussion of the Tiananmen Square protests, China's annexation of Tibet and persecution of Muslim minorities, and other dicey issue, issues. For that reason, Florida Senator Marco Rubio and Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton, both presidential hopefuls, have recently called for closing these institutes down. Just this month, Texas A&M cut ties with its Confucius Institute. Less known is the concern of Western intelligence agencies that the institutes also make ideal listening posts and recruiting stations for Chinese intelligence. While it seems far-fetched that the education ministry intends the institutes to be used for espionage, it's likely that China's powerful security services either bypassing or overriding education officials directly enlist institute staff or teachers. In fact, the director of a Confucius Institute in Indiana told me that once, while he was visiting China for a Confucius Institute event, Chinese intelligence approached him to gauge his interest in spying. He begged off, saying he wasn't a political person. Chinese intelligence does see Confucius Institutes as a way to gather information he told me. We are in the middle of politics and secret service between the two countries. The FBI had approached that same Confucius Institute director and asked him to gather information for us. <clears throat> in Senate testimony earlier this month, FBI Director Christopher Wray acknowledged publicly for the first time what I reported in my book, that the Bureau is concerned about Confucius Institutes and has been watching and in some cases investigating them. There's also the Chinese Students and Scholars Associations, which have long had a reputation for monitoring Chinese students and reporting dissidents to China's embassy. Foreign Policy Magazine reported recently that Chinese consulates regularly fund CSSAs, which are the primary Chinese student organizations at American universities. Working with CSSAs, the embassy has paid students to participate in demonstrations of support for visiting Chinese leaders. Increasingly, China's government has pressured CSSAs to demonstrate their patriotism by posting government propaganda and holding discussions of Communist Party pronouncements. While Derek Bach was president of Harvard, he told me recently, this would have been primarily in the 70s 80s, and 80s, though he came back kind of for a cameo in the early 2000s, uh, a law school professor expressed concern to him the Chinese students were afraid to speak frankly in class for fear that Chinese classmates would inform on them. Bach felt upset and helpless. I don't think we could figure out what to do, he told me. I certainly didn't like it. There's just no way Harvard could figure out who is spying for their native country and or what students are doing here. We have no means for making that kind of investigation. Chinese intelligence also penetrates American higher education through a subsidiary university, the University of International Relations in Beijing. UIR is affiliated with and partly funded by China's Ministry of State Security, its intelligence agency, which plucks promising candidates from UIR to replenish its ranks. 
In one of the most bizarre partnerships in American higher education, China's spy university exchanges professors with and sends students to Marietta College, a small liberal arts college in rural Ohio. The relationship turns some Marietta professors into functionaries of China's security ministry, which pays them to come to Beijing and teach American culture to UIR summer students, likely including future intelligence officers. Marietta gives UIR legitimacy outside China and a low-profile outlet where its students and faculty can experience America firsthand. When I asked one China expert why would UIR partner with a small, isolated college in the American heartland like Marietta, he said, I guess somebody got up and said we need to find an all-American place so we can learn the habits of America. In return, UIR has helped Marietta, which has a modest endowment and depends primarily on tuition revenue, to attract a flood of full-paying Chinese students. <clears throat> Excuse me. The windfall has been sizable enough to squelch any doubts within the Marietta administration about the wisdom of collaborating with a spy school. I'm thinking I'm so naive, a former Marietta provost told me. I personally never questioned the UIR relationship. Marietta isn't UIR's only partner in American higher education. Another is UMass Boston, in my own neck of the woods. Uh, Skylar Corban, Vice Provost for Global Programs at UMass Boston, traveled to Beijing in October 2013 and exchanged gifts with Jian Tao, President of the University of International Relations, a pen holder with UMass Boston engraved on it for Jian, a cardboard box with packets of green tea for Corban. In an ensuing memo of understanding, the universities agreed to promote student and faculty exchanges, symposia, and other joint activities. Corban told me that he had, quote, no inkling, unquote, of UIR's ties to Chinese intelligence. <clears throat> While espionage services are active on university campuses, students and professors may be even more vulnerable to recruitment when they're off campus, participating in academic conferences, study abroad programs, and the like. Intelligence officers flock to conferences for the same reason that lawyers chase ambulances. Excuse me, I forgot to turn this off. Apologize. Let's take a second. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's my son, actually. I can see. I need to get a parking spot somewhere, so he... Uh, he was calling me with his license plate because I'll be driving his car. So anyway, that's, that's what that is. Um, uh, it, intelligence officers flock to conferences for the same reason that lawyers chase ambulances and army recruiters concentrate on low-income neighborhoods. They make the best hunting grounds. As Willie Sutton famously said when asked why he robbed banks, because that's where the money is. While a university campus may have only one or two professors of interest to an intelligence service, the right conference maybe on drone technology or ISIS, may have dozens. The, the FBI warned American academics in 2011 to beware of conferences, citing this scenario. A researcher receives an unsolicited invitation to submit a paper for an international conference. She submits a paper and it's accepted. At the conference, the hosts ask for a copy of her presentation. The hosts hook a thumb drive to her laptop and unbeknownst to her, download every file and data source from her computer. The number of Americans studying abroad has more than doubled since 2001 
to 325,339 in 2016. China ranks as the sixth most popular destination, although the number of U.S. students going there has actually dropped 22% uh, to 11,688 in 2016. In the summer after his freshman year at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, Glenn Duffy Shriver spent six weeks in China on a study abroad program and fell in love with it. He returned for his junior year abroad and then right after graduation. Hard pressed for money in Shanghai, he answered an ad in October 2004 on an English language website that offered payment for political essays with a background in East Asian studies. Ostensibly placed by Shanghai's municipal government, the ad was a ploy by Chinese intelligence, which viewed Shriver as a human missile it could guide into the highest reaches of the U.S. foreign policy establishment. It paid him $10,000 and then another $20,000 for taking the foreign service exam, even though he failed both times. Then it paid him another $40,000 to apply to the CIA's clandestine service. But, you know, Shriver thought that... Uh, he could outwit the, the Chinese intelligence. He could just accept the money and then not do anything for them. But uh, that was naive. I mean, as, as his text, test results showed, he wasn't quite as clever as he thought he was. And uh, the CIA figured out that he was a would-be mole. He failed a lie detector test, pleaded guilty to conspiring to commit espionage for a foreign government, and was sentenced to four years in prison. A person familiar with the Shriver investigation told me that Chinese intelligence had created a separate unit to recruit Western students in China. I think I was motivated by greed, Shriver told the judge at his sentencing. I mean, you know, large stacks of money in front of me. And them saying, hey, don't worry, you don't have to do anything for it. China, of course, isn't the only country to worry about. Last month, the U.S. Justice Department indicted nine Iranians affiliated with a Tehran-based company called the Mabna Institute for hacking into 144 American universities since 2013 to steal sensitive data and intellectual property on behalf of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which gathers intelligence for the Iranian government. Using a technique known as spear phishing, which the younger people here probably understand much better than I do, <clears throat> they allegedly compromised the accounts of 8,000 professors worldwide and almost 3,800 in the U.S., by sending them emails that appeared to come from colleagues at other schools. Russia, which of course has been much in the news for its covert efforts to influence the 2016 presidential campaign, has a long tradition dating back to the Soviet KGB era and the Cambridge Five, the spies at Cambridge University in England, of targeting Western universities. Russian intelligence views the constant shuffling of policymakers between the federal government, think tanks, and academia as a weakness of our system that it can exploit. In 2010, when the FBI arrested 10 Russian illegals, spies without diplomatic protection, like the KGB duo who pose as suburban travel agents in one of my favorite television series, The Americans, uh, the media focused on the so-called sexy spy, Anna Chapman. Largely overlooked was that Russia had placed seven of the other nine in universities, including Harvard, Columbia, the New School, and the University of Washington. Under the name Cynthia Murphy, one illegal earned associates and bachelor's degrees at New York University and a master's degree at Columbia Business School. Her real name was Lydia Guryeva, and her assignments from Russian intelligence were quite different from her Columbia homework. 
Moscow's marching orders were to, quote, strengthen ties with classmates on daily basis, including professors who can help in job search and who will have or already have access to in secret info, unquote, and to report, quote, on their detailed personal data and character traits with preliminary conclusions about their potential vulnerability to be recruited by service, unquote. When it turned out that Murphy was a Russian spy using a false name and background, Columbia didn't even rescind her degree, which speaks volumes about how much, or rather how little, some universities care about this issue. Russia's former satellite, Cuba, similarly focuses on academe. The Cuban intelligence office, uh, services are known to actively target the U.S. academic world for the purposes of recruiting agents in order to both obtain useful information and conduct influence activities, the FBI warned in 2014. Cuban intelligence has been especially active at universities in southern Florida, New York City, and the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, um, if you read my book, there's a chapter about uh, two women of Puerto Rican descent uh, who were uh, spied for Cuba uh, and became, you know, became quite effective. And one of them recruited the other at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which is, I just walked that distance roughly. It's not very far from here at all. Another this part of DuPont Circle, I guess. Um, and uh, that's an interesting story. It's, uh, just to digress a second, unlike some of the other countries I mentioned, there's not a lot of Cuban students in the U.S. because of the long-time friction between the two countries. So Cuba relies heavily on Puerto Rican students who are sympathetic to the Puerto Rican independence movement and see Cuba and its resistance to the U.S. as kind of a model for Puerto Rico. How should the U.S. government and universities respond to the surge in academic espionage from China, Russia, Iran, Cuba, and, and other countries? Uh, that's a difficult question, and uh, you know, as an investigative reporter, I'm far more proficient at exposing problems than prescribing solutions. But you know, because of the significant benefits of the globalization of higher education, which I you know enumerated earlier, I don't believe in capping or curtailing the influx of international students and professors. Instead, I, I think universities should be smarter and more sophisticated about the international ramifications of aspects of higher education, such as international admissions, student and faculty exchanges, study abroad programs, and research collaborations. For example, I'd like to see more training and courses in intellectual property rights, contractual agreements for cross-border collaborations that spell out each side's access to data and equipment, and study abroad orientation sessions that include tips on recognizing come-ons from intelligence agencies. And if students or alumni are exposed as foreign spies, universities should deny or revoke their degrees rather than looking the other way. Uh, long sort of uh, overlooked, Chinese espionage on campus is finally drawing attention, not so much from universities, but from the government. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified to Congress uh, not long ago that China's quote, use of non-traditional collectors, especially in the academic field, whether it's professors, scientists, students, we see in almost every field office that the FBI has around the country. It's not just in major cities, it's in small ones as well. It's across basically every discipline. 
And I think the level of naivete on the part of the academic sector about this creates its own issues. They're exploiting the very open research and development environment that we have. Academia ignores espionage at its peril. As long as American universities conduct vital research, place alumni and faculty in the upper echelons of government and business, and perhaps more important, remain a bastion of access and international culture in a fearful lockdown world, they will attract attention from intelligence services. Unless they become more vigilant, spy scandals could undermine their values, tarnish their reputations, and spur greater scrutiny of their governance, admissions, and hiring. I think, you know, as Americans, we're, um, we're all concerned, and rightly so, about foreign intelligence services interfering in our elections. But, you know, like democratic elections, a robust and open and intellectually curious system of higher education is a hallmark of a, our society and sort of a symbol of, you know, the virtues of the American system to the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, we should take pains to protect it as well. Uh, thanks very much. So I'm glad to take any, any questions uh, that anybody has and uh, talk about this at length. Thank you.